You're listening to the Sagas and Sass podcast. This episode features audio from a previously aired live video webcast. Welcome to Sagas and Sass Season 3, brought to you by Geek Saga Entertainment. I'm Tara, along with fellow host Nick, Jonathan, and Nami. This episode will cover parts 3 through 6 of The Bronze Beasts, the final installment in Rashani Chakschi's Gilded Wolves trilogy. If you're watching live, join us in the chat, or after the fact, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Sagas and Sass, or email us at sagasandsass at gmail.com to continue the conversation. Please note that the views expressed in this show are those of the hosts as individuals and do not necessarily represent the show as a whole. And don't forget that we now have a Patreon with 10 tiers ranging from $1 a month to $40 a month. It offers tons of ways to support us and receive some really great perks in return. In fact, we just updated some of our tiers to include new perks for our $3 per month guard tier and for all tiers from $5 a month and up. So check it out at patreon.com slash geeksaga underscore entertainment. So, wow, did we leave our cookies on one heck of a cliffhanger. In our last episode, they had absconded almost too easily with House Janus's mind-forged map of Pavegulia, where Severin will be supposedly be able to play the Divine Liar. And then they er, blew up Ruslan. Only things didn't quite go according to plan. Severin was seriously injured in the explosion, and we were left with Layla telling him not to die. Thankfully, part three kicks off with the immediate reveal that Severin is in fact alive. Or considering how we feel about Severin, maybe it's not thankfully. Huh? <laughs> he is at least in full beg for forgiveness mode, though Enrique is kind of in full drama mode for good reason and refusing to just bow to Severin's whims or to his apologies. So first things first, they have to finish reading that Mindforge map that they acquired, which will lead them to Paveglia, which, by the way, is a former leper colony that no sane person actually wants to visit. It takes some work, but they find the statue of the siren, it will allow them to enter the next step of their journey, which involves falling into an entirely new place with the lake that is kind of literally full of sirens that end up almost luring Zofia and Severin into their depths. Why just Zofia and Severin? Well, Hypnos is covering his ears, Enrique has one missing ear muffled by bandages and another filled with beeswax, and Layla is immune, probably because she is forged. Anyway, these are the, uh, there are these amplifiers, and Hypnos uses one and starts singing and kind of wins the day, except Sophia is so enraptured with a siren who appears to be her sister that she comes dangerously close to being dragged into the lake. But then, Enrique to the rescue! He swoops in to bring Sophia back to reality, oh, there goes gravity, and they finally make it across the bridge to the next challenge, figuring out how to get through a solid wall. And hey, here's Hypnos with the wind again, because it turns out wind is the answer. And Hypnos, who is super extra in the best of ways, brought a fan. And I am a fan of it. <laughs> so they fan their way through this wall, and everything seems copacetic. Until Layla realizes that the box they carried the map in is a forged, and shit starts exploding, and... Jesus fucking Christ! God damn it, Ruslan shows up! Ugh. Because apparently, a simple explosion can't kill this asshole. And not only does he show up, but he has a bunch of very obviously undead fallen house members with him. Oh, and uh, by the way, the name of the fallen house is House Abyss. But uh, don't worry, literally never comes into play after Ruslan mentions it. 
insert obvious eye roll. So, Crystal is totally focused on getting Severin to the palace where he can play the liar, but as it turns out, the temple is working against them the entire time. Enrique is barely able to convince Jerusalem that they can't even begin advancing until noon because uh, magic rules. And But when they do, they just climb and climb and climb up the ziggurat without seeming to actually gain much, if any, ground. Spoiler, this is what happens to me when I attempt to climb stairs. <laughs> Eventually, Ruslan insists on taking things into his own hands, slicing Severin's hand in an attempt to simply use his blood to play the liar. But not surprisingly, this just makes things way worse. Because the temple understands that it's not the right person trying to use the liar, and the giant statues guarding the ziggurats are smashing things, even as Zofia's Tuscat sensing necklace lights up, proving there is another door that will hopefully lead them to the right place. But as much as things fell into place for our cookies in the first half of this book, this is now when they truly fall apart. Uh, that is, if you didn't think they were already falling apart, because frankly, that's what I thought. While Ruslan is destroyed by his own actions, haha, bye again, bitch, this time for real, <laughs> the giant statues are making it impossible for Severin and the others to reach the Tezcat, resulting in Severin having to actually use the Divine Liar, which of course is Layla's undoing. And here we come to a sort of interlude in which Severin meets Layla as a bride and she tells him that she, as someone who is both forged and human, has to stay and guard the temple. She says, I will oversee its power as it removes forging from our world. In return, I will heal, I will live, and as long as I live, so will you. I will always be with you. Sadly, the Layla we know in our timeline does in fact die, but as Severon was experiencing his moment in heaven with her, the other cookies are also seeing amazing things. Enrique imagined long, slender fingers made of music dragging up his ribcage, strumming his bones as if they were the, lutes, uh, the strings of a lute, as if it could turn him into a note that was part of the song that moved the universe. Hypnos hears a song that tells him he was good enough as he was, that his soul held a symphony of its own. Sophia doesn't recall what she glimpsed on the other side, but she remembers a feeling of extraordinary calm. Meanwhile, in the real world, the little boy Severan gave apples to earlier in the novel sees the forged things collapsing, and because of this is able to feed his little brother without worrying about getting caught by the policia, cough, cough, a cab. <laughs> A forged artifact being auctioned in New York bursts apart to the chagrin of those attempting to sell and or purchase it. And in the Philippines, a young girl hoping that she will be allowed to partake in higher education experiences a sound ripping through her home and takes it as a sign that she will get her wish. In the days after the experience in the temple, Enrique and Zofia tentatively step into something like a relationship while Hypnos lurks on the edges in a very telling way. And Severon actually remains present rather than distancing himself as he did after Tristan's passing. He also opens his hotel, Le Den, to families. He claims that it's for monetary reasons, but it's clear there's something else going on. Though, whatever his reasoning really is, what seems most important at the time is that the arrival of some very curious children leads to Enrique understanding something that both of his loves, those being Zofia and Hypnos, knew all along. That he should be a teacher. Oh, 
And as it turns out, Zofia's sister, Hila, is totally fine. She eloped with the doctor Severin sent to care for her, and they're coming to visit soon. As if that's not sweet enough, the former Seven Sins Garden has been transformed into a rehabilitation menagerie for birds, and now Severin has a formerly abused peacock named Argos following him around like a dog. Seriously, he does not deserve Argos, but this whole thing is so <laughs> cute. While he is also preparing the hotel as a home for the children he is adopting, Luca and Filippo, the brothers from Venice who he once fed apples to. Time passes. A lot of time, in fact. Severin raises his adopted sons and never grows old. But does that even compare to the fact that Sophia, Enrique, and Hypnos do, in fact, as far as we are concerned, become a thruple slash hinge relationship and live happily fucking af ever after? Holy shit, OMG, we are here for it! <laughs> but when we say a lot of time passes, we mean it. Severin sees his adopted sons grow up, marry, and have children. His friends pass away, and his entire world changes, and yet he never ages. Until the year 1990 rolls around, 100 years after the events in the temple, and one day he walks back into his hotel, which is entirely changed from what he created more than a century ago, and the hairs on the back of his neck stand up. And he knows. Before he even catches a hint of the scent of rose water and sugar, he knows. And he opens the door to his apartments, and here's the words he has been waiting for. Hello, Majnun. I'm not crying, you're crying! Let's get into it. <laughs> <laughs> Real quick, because Jonathan and, and Nami, neither one of you were here for our last episode. So real quick, uh, we'll start... We'll start with you, Nami, because I think it's been longer since you joined us. What have been, or what, what, what were your thoughts on the first half of this book? Like, just leading, leading up to where we are in this episode. I just remember vibrating aggressively while reading this book. Because for me, I had actually waited for it to come out when I was reading it. So I just remember just, like, shaking and vibrating. And honestly low-key this whole book was kind of a blur to me when I read it because it was just sort of like so many things happen one on top of another on top of another and like the pace is sort of breakneck for the entire time that that's where I was at with it but yeah no I've been I've been like slightly dead sorry guys uh, work has been wholly trying to eat me but it is okay I'm I'm alive now and, and, and I'll be the Debbie Downer because I went through it and while it was happening breakneck's pace of but i can't wait to get this series over with sort of feel i've i've it seemed very repetitive to book the first half anyway seemed very repetitive to book and um i was you know okay when does it end <laughs> sorry yeah i mean i'm i, I to be honest it, it did it, it did feel like in the first half of this book, things were kind of too easy, right? It all, it starts off with them all being in different places and, or well, not all of them, but Layla, Enrique, Zofia, and Hypnos are together, but they don't know where Severin is. Layla has destroyed the Nemo bug, so they have no way of knowing when they're supposed to meet with him. And, you know, Severin is trying to convince Ava to help him and, and uses the whole, like, my friends aren't dead. They're going to meet me at this bridge as a, you know, reasoning behind why she should trust him and then nobody shows up because they didn't know he was going to be there. Uh, but like other, it was like everything just kind of fell into place because then even though they didn't show up for that, then the very next thing that happens is they all go to the place where they get the masks for the house Janice thing. And yeah, it was like 
it was very easygoing, right? And Nick and I talked about that a lot in our last in the last episode when we talked about the first half of the book. But on that note, one of the things that I did mention in the last episode was Zofia had the whole equation where she said that she's the one who gives them light and like, oh, I don't know what Hypnos gives us, maybe perspective. And I said, I really think it's the opposite. I think Hypnos with his like lighthearted humor and stuff provides light, not literally, but figuratively. And Zofia is the one with her constant like scientific mathematical reasoning who provides perspective all the time. I still think that's the case in a way, but Zofia provides the fire in this half of the book. So she is the one who literally gives them light. But again, I still argue that you could, I still argue that her and Hypnos are interchangeable in a good way, in that he brings light in the form of humor and she brings perspective in the form of science. In a way, I kind of like that too, like, especially because, like, Zofia's interpretation of things is very, very literal. Mm -hmm. So, in her eyes, there's a reason that she's like, I, yes, I bring the literal light when it turns out that, like, you know, Hypnos brings the figurative light. So, I think that makes a lot of sense with, like, who she is as, like, a person to have that perspective when it's also, in a way, like, switched. Yeah, I mean, Nick, since you were on the last episode, and, and this is something that we talked about, what what are your thoughts on on the light versus perspective situation? <laughs> yeah, I like the, the idea that they are kind of interchangeable in that way, um, in, like you said, in a very positive sense. I mean, what would they do without Hypnos? And, and let me just say, uh, when I read the passage where Hypnos brings out his fan and is, you know, fanning the the secret door open, all I could think of, and this is this is a little bit of a deep cut for anybody watching this. I run a convention called Ice and FireCon. This year, we did a musical called uh, Queens, the musical, uh, which is a parody version of six mix the musical six mixed with song of lights fire game of thrones and our friend joy who played varus at one point whipped out a fan that says yes it's like a bright pink fan that says yes across it and now all i can think of is hypnos with joy's yes fan <laughs> waving oh my god right yep and honestly, if you like, if you look up giant fans like that online, you'll see what I mean. And it is so very extra and so very Hypnos. I that just, sounds like Hypnos's exact genre of interest, and I am mm -hmm. here for it. And for him to thrive with a giant fan that says "Yas" on it. Yep, yep, yep. Because he would. Hypnos so, is so good. He just is. Gosh. Uh, okay, so one thing I wanted to get out of the way, did I miss something or did they, was the title of the novel actually not stupidly spelled out this time? <laughs> I didn't find it. Okay. And I remember very distinctly finding it in the first book and the second book and like sighing. And I didn't this time and I didn't do that. <laughs> so I think it wasn't real, which is exciting. Yeah, I don't have like an ebook version or whatever that I can search. So, but I, I mean, I was looking for it. I was waiting for it. And I mean, I wrote, 
I, I put down my notes for this episode as soon as I finished the book. And I mean, I don't remember, Jonathan, you don't remember reading it at all, right? The bronze beat, the, the term, the bronze beast or bronze beast or anything. I don't remember it, but it wouldn't have shocked me if it was in the scene in the scene where they were fighting the automatons. Yeah, but they—I I mean, those aren't even beasts. Really they're like—they're so. like humanoid, and I know, but that's—that's that's the only time I could think it would be mentioned. So now I'm kind of also like, listen, I didn't ever want it literally spelled out the way it was <laughs> in the first two books, but also, why is this book called *The Bronze Beast* then? Because now I don't, now now I'm now I'm lost as to why. Maybe, maybe it got edited out in final edits. Maybe I, I mean, and listen, <laughs> I get, I get it. So so actually, when we read uh, Devabad, it was what was it? Um, Kingdom of Copper, right? And then yeah. what's the second one? Oh gosh, City of Brass. Oh so, yeah, that was City of Brass was the first one. Kingdom of Copper was the second one. Empire of Gold was the third one. So that went up in terms of metals that are worth money and this one went down gilded silvered bronzed well i don't know i i well gilded could be in in any metal and it's and well, is usually cheap right i mean it's cheap it's not really 24 oh, all, karat yeah, gold yeah. you're just putting a little gold China. plate on it but but <laughs> i mean it's like olympic medals right Gold, silver, yeah, bronze. Silver, bronze. So I, I'm still very. There are things I would like to ask this author, but right now, top of my mind, and actually, since I finished this book, top of my mind has been. So why, <laughs> why is it the bronze beasts? Yeah, I don't know. Like, the the first two were very obviously mm. spelled out in a way that I didn't like. But also this one, <laughs> I, I'm I'm honestly lost. Do, 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 any none of you have any thoughts? It, on it's why funny because it went from like one extreme and then like literally backflipped to the other extreme. Like, oh, oh, you didn't want it explicitly spelled out of the book. Well, then I won't tell you. And I'm like, no, no, that's not. You what get I nothing. <laughs> you don't get. Was it okay? Wait, was it maybe the statues that they? That's what I was the thinking. The only thing I could think of was like the statues that were guarding the ziggurat. No, no, no. I'm no, no, not those because those weren't beasts. Those were humanoid. I'm thinking of when they were going into House Janus, and remember, like they had to, or I think it was just Severin. It wasn't the rest of them had a different entryway, but Severin rode like a like a wolf or something or a winged oh, lion or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. There were all those like animal statues, yeah. right? So I okay, so now that I'm thinking about it, I'm pretty sure it was that, but it wasn't I don't remember it being stated that they were bronze statues. Whatever. I guess it doesn't matter. I it just was like, listen, I didn't want it explicitly spelled out, but I also don't want to have to think about it too much. Cause and and I wouldn't have, except for the fact that it was so explicitly said in the first two books. Oh, oh well. Okay, so I feel like we're like the Goldilocks of metaphors right now. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of magic things, <laughs> Sai, huh, the magic in this series and the lack of explanation for like most of it, maybe mm. all of it, I don't know, bugged me. Like, it even took me a minute to connect that it was 100 years between what happened in the temple and Layla coming back. Uh, but also how? 
like why a hundred years? How a hundred years? Why a hundred years? I don't necessarily need the kind of over the top Brandon Sanderson Stormlight Chronicles level of exposition on the magic system, honestly. But this series left me with like way too many fucking questions. For example, why did all forged objects stop working, but the people who had mind or matter affinity still had their powers? And there was a comment about how those powers would also go away eventually, but then no information about when or even if it did. And it was kind of maddening, I think, especially with as, as many series as we've covered and as well, well, none of them I have been on that Sanderson level of explanation behind the magic system. We've always, I've, I've never come out of one of the series that we've read just thinking, how the fuck is any of this work? What is happening? Like, and, and this one, I, I, I think I even could have forgave the lack of explanation behind forging and how it worked, et cetera. If, if there had been more explanation about what was happening when Severn played the liar and all the forging started breaking. And, you know, like I said, why are something like, like forged objects are, are just stopping to work and some of them are just disappearing entirely into like dust. What's the difference? What's the difference between one that just stops working and one that disappears entirely to dust? What's, why are people with these affinities still able to work with those affinities and and but then there's like this whole hint that it's going to go away and does it I, I don't know was I the only one that was frustrated with this because like no ab absolutely like I yeah I maintain that like I love these books and like like I I enjoy this series and Layla makes me feel seen in a way that I never thought I would be seen in YA books ever and because of that these books have a very warm place in my heart forever However, if it wasn't for, like, the things that drew me to this series, this magic system would have driven me up a wall and off a cliff. Like, I, y'all know that I, like, went off when we were talking, like, Grishaverse stuff about, like, how much I loved, like, the rules with the, the Grisha system and sort of, like, exploring what was possible within that and, like, you know, like, overanalyzing rules, like, I'm the person who sits and like watches Avatar The Last Airbender and I like analyze what bending constitutes on a molecular level. Like, oh, are waterbenders really bending? Like, so but, like my thing is that I'm like, are they like bending like the molecule of water with like eight, two hydrogens and one oxygen? Or are firebenders like harnessing the power of combustion or do they just uh, like, use the energy after like i love that kind of like deep dive like nerdy nonsense and also it sounds to me like i need to read some or some brandon sanderson frankly yep. <laughs> but uh <laughs> like, that is a series i would love for us to cover but it would be a long ass series to cover because those books are fucking long which, which what one are you talking about the stormlight archive specifically uh, I like I like Mistborn too, but I think I think if you're going to start with Sanderson, you need to start with Stormlight because it's much better written. Anyway, mm -hmm. beyond that, but yeah, no. So it's like if this magic system, for example, if this magic system was in Temerar, I would have chucked the book against a wall. And y'all already know <laughs> I already emotionally chucked Temerar against the wall. Like it would. This magic system drove me out of my goddamn mind. And eventually, like, I want to say, like, even halfway through the first book, I sort of realized, I was like, all right, I'm not getting the answers I want. Okay. And one right. day, like, I know for a fact, or rather, I suspect for a fact 
that like any author who writes a story like this with the magic system has crazy magic system rules that just don't make it into the book so like if I ever met Roshi Chokshi, I would just be like, all right, all right, sit me down. What are the actual rules to forging? Like, tell me all of it. Because I'm sure she has, like, a novel in her head about, like, how this system actually works. And I really want to know what it is because I'm curious. But unfortunately, what actually meant made it onto paper was sort of, like, hand-wavy archaeological magic. And... In a way, it does work for what we need in this series, but also as somebody who hyperfixates on like magic systems with rules that I can dissect, this was not it. I sort of just had to um like agree to like personally take a step back from what I needed from a magic system to just be like, okay, you're not gonna get answers and you need to be okay with that. Are you okay with that? A tiny Nami in a cage in the back of her brain. Yeah, I want rules! Give me rules! Big Nami. No, you're not going to get them. <laughs> now. You'll be okay. And then me at the end of this book was, Rules! Rules! Wait. <laughs> Layla lives, so I guess I'll deal. I think that, I think that for me, I was, I, I was on the same page as you with like, I was okay with not getting the explanations and everything for how things worked. But the end of this book killed that for me only because like I said, it's like we were told all these things like, but then we see like some forged objects just poof into dust and others just stop working like as, as explained when they go back to Leda and they're just having to have real lights and stuff and not floating candles and everything and 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 again the, the whole thing where um okay so so the mind matter affinities only I guess are are working and their other ones aren't but there's a line about how those will go away too and it's like okay so wait did they yeah, honestly, I think the vibe that I got, like, at the end of the book was very much, like, it was written to be evocative and sort of, like, vaguely historical without going into things to, like, allow for, like, the fast-forwardy time feel. And, like, I think that's why we didn't get those details. And honestly, like, I'm gonna be real honest, like, that part of the ending didn't really bother me because it was just sort of immediately followed by the thruple and by the thruple success and by the Layla and Severin reunite and also by the undercurrent of through being a dick for most of his life, Severin actually becomes a present friend and a good father. And I was like, all right, okay, all of this good shit, I guess I can ignore magic falling apart. <laughs> okay, so... Nick, Jonathan, any any thoughts on the frustrations with the magic system? I honestly, that was the least of my issues with the whole series, <laughs> so I didn't really care. <laughs> uh, like you, I didn't care until the end when there was like just so much focused on the magic system with very little explained at any point in the series. I was totally fine with that for most of it when we were like, okay, this is how this all works. I kind of loosely understand that. I don't really need to know details, but then when the entire like last, at least quarter, probably a little more than that of the book is specifically focused on all these different 
aspects of the magic system, but without actually talking about the magic system, it really was frustrating. Like I wanted to be the 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 part where the little girl in the Philippines is like opining over the fact that I don't know if she's little actually she might be like a teenager. The girl in the Philippines is is mm-hmm. pining over the fact that she can't be educated the way her brothers are being educated and everything. And then she just hears this ripping noise and like that fabric of time or something. And all of a sudden she's like, "That noise means I will be educated." And it's like, I, I like the idea of that, but what? Why? that's sweet (laughs) but what (laughs) yeah yeah and i know nami brought up the one thing that at least three of us want to talk about maybe john and the two but before we get into that (laughs) let's let's get the rest of the things out of the way yeah then we can just have joyous yes then we can just have joyous conclusion was ruslan so this is a total non sequitur was ruslan coming back necessary of course he did like of course he came back i mean nick and i in in the last episode were like i mean obviously he's not dead right like we want him to be dead but it's that's too easy it's too easy he died off he died off screen yeah it didn't make sense, uh, but bringing him back only to kill him off again so quickly felt completely ridiculous to me, mostly because I feel like they they were going to have hardships in e- even once Hypnos yassed their way through They were always going to have issues getting up there and i granted i know that ruslan cutting severin's hand and trying to use his blood was a big part of what really held them back but i don't know man i just wasn't do do we do any of us think it was necessary no i didn't think it was necessary at all but i found it like very comedically funny because it find it kind of felt like you know when you watch like a bad guy in a series just like make the wrong decision 17 times and you're like oh buddy oh buddy oh buddy i felt like i was watching the wet bandits from home alone just like repeatedly falling into this kid's traps and i was like come on guys don't touch the glowing doorknob that's obvious i'll be honest i thought of hans gruber from fucking (laughs) die hard for some reason yeah just like (laughs) It was just like in a way it was so like pathetically funny that i was entertained by it but i was like this didn't need to be here like he could have been dead and they would have had enough problems on their own but i was just kind of like like i was like wow this guy used to have his shit together look how dumb he is now huh. <sighs> yeah i mean well john and then you, again because you 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 didn't get to discuss with us a couple weeks ago about Ruslan possibly dying, but we were like, eh, he didn't really die. So how did you feel about him, quote unquote, dying and then coming Well, back? I mean, in one sense, it was a surprise. In the other sense, there's no other ant- uh, antagonist. So the series had no other antagonist. So it was sort of felt sort of, in some ways, inevitable that otherwise you've got to bring someone there to perform the the job of the villain. And I can't, I couldn't imagine they were going to, you know, have no villain for the last half of a book. So, which is exactly my issue with it. It's sloppy writing. <laughs> you've, you've basically set it up so that there's no way that he's actually dead. So we don't believe 
like Tara, Tara and I were talking about last time, like we don't believe that he's dead because there's no way you kill off your major antagonist halfway through the last book. So I mean, at you, that point, it's could, like you could have had someone else from the fallen house be be there, but you you don't have anybody from the fallen else from the fallen. Well, house, I know, right? but you could have brought without introducing in. a new character in the yeah. final half of the last book. I agree with you. It's hard, but it, it could be done theoretically. Right, but that's my point. Is like that you you basically write yourself into a point where it is inevitable that he is going to come back. But having the reasons for him coming back and then basically having to kill him off again is also, like, there's not really a good reason for why he came back. Aside from, oh, he's kind of also part gold, and so that didn't kill him. And then also, you kill him off again. So it it really is, to me, unfortunately, just an example of, like, this was not a well-written section. And it if it's sad for me because there were so many things that I really loved about this series, especially some of the characters, minus Severon. Uh, <laughs> Not Severon. All right, that's all. And right. it's just like it, it, there was there's so much potential, and there were these things that kept pulling me out, like, uh, well, Severon is a character. Uh, like Ruslan being brought back at the 10th hour or 11th hour or whatever hour it is. And uh, like all this stuff happening with the magic in the world without us really understanding what the magic was. Like those were the the, the three main pieces. And actually Severon got better in the last half of this book. But those other two pieces are the things that frustrated me yeah. so much about that ending. Yeah, I definitely agree about those two pieces. I'd say for me, the third piece that was frustrating was the um, explicit inclusion of the titles in the first two books, and then <laughs> the complete the and <laughs> metaphor of the last one where I could barely find it. But <laughs> for me, I actually did like Severon as a character, though I dislike him immensely, because there's something kind of entertaining about watching a person make all of the most terrible decisions for themselves and then face the consequences of their shitty actions, because that is what he does. And like the fact that he does eventually learn from it and become better at like at the end of the series is rewarding, even though a lot of like because the whole thing is that, like, you know, first two books, we were like, yep, Severon sucks, Severon sucks, Severon sucks. And then this book was when he, like, started getting his shit together. And finally, like, and then, like, even the time skippy sense, you can tell that he, like, like the whole, like, time skippy at the end was, like, he was a present friend and a good dad. And you're like, damn, the old Severon would never have done that. And, like, in a way, like, I enjoyed Severon's character arc, even though I do not like him. And I maintain that Layla has terrible taste in men, but she is allowed to have terrible taste in men. Because big same, girl, I too have terrible taste in men. I think for me... I mean, they're men, so... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, men. Um, <laughs> I, I think for me, the, the problem I had with the quote-unquote character arc was that he started out not great and he got so much worse and then it was like this complete 180 right 
it, yeah. it, it just it just felt too I don't know contrived fast um I'm glad I'm glad that he turned out to be a present friend and a good father and all of that I am because otherwise I would have been like <laughs> the end of this series but I, I do think it was kind of it was contrived it was too fast um well I think for me the thing that really like clicked it for me in his character development was sort of like his revelization that people are not just going to believe in him no matter what as long as if he doesn't show shit like his whole rebel his whole like he's like so convinced at the end of the last book that like he's gonna leave the nemo bug for layla and she's definitely going to read it and definitely not going to crush it in anger because he just stabbed her friends in front of her after being a dick to her and blaming his little brother's death on her like, yeah, I like it was narratively fast, but I think that moment when he like when nobody shows up at that bridge was like really pivotal for him because that's the moment where he's like, oh, shit, I can fuck up enough that my worst fear of these people leaving me because I'm a fuck up actually comes true because <laughs> you did, bud. And I don't know. I did really enjoy Silver and Serpent Separate, even though I wanted to kick him in the dick, because there is something satisfying about seeing a character make the worst decisions for themselves and, like, continue to, like, choke, like, shove their foot further up their mouth so far that it emerges from their asshole, which is what Silver and Serpent's was. I feel like we should tweet that one. We have so many nice Nami tweets that, like... <laughs> Well, I'll, have to, I'll have to come back at the 39 minute mark. And, and see, see, I also, I also have to say, I'm pretty sure you made up a new word. You said a revelization, which is a combination of revelation and realization. And I love I this. That. I say I that this. all the time. Okay, I really so do. I like can convince we, myself it's a real word. Can we, can, can we coin the revelization? Absolutely. <laughs> Heck yeah. I, you know, sometimes I'm like, sometimes I'm like coherent in a beautiful verbose way. Other times I speak about shoving foots into your mouth and the mouth and then emerging from your asshole. And then other times I make up words a la Shakespeare. Listen, I love, I love. That's why we love you. Yeah. And I love (laughs) the word revelization because it's a revelation and a realization at the same time. I love it. I'm here. I straight up, like, I did not know that I did that until, like, one of my coworkers pointed it out, like, a couple months ago. And then I've been like, oh, shit. Yeah, no, I do always combine those two words. I do always use this as it's a real word. (laughs) So, okay. One other thing I wanted to get into was why did they bother giving the fallen houses name? Like, okay, it was nice that we finally got it. House Addis, A-T-T-I-S. But... Am I wrong or did it literally not matter at all? And I, I want to go ahead and I, I've read a lot of mythology, Greek mythology, Roman mythology, et cetera. So in, I did recognize it, but I did have to Google it because I was like, why does this sound so familiar? So in Greek mythology, Attis was the consort of the goddess Sibylle, who was the mistress of wild nature symbolized by her constant companion the lion and she was also a healer and a goddess of fertility and a protectress in time of war etc et she she had she she wore a lot of hats 
which I can absolutely identify with. Originally, this was, uh, Attis was a deity in uh, Phrygia, but the cult of Attis and Sibylle actually, like, eventually spread to Greece. And the end of the story was that in a jealous passion, Attis caused Sibylle to go mad, whereupon Attis castrated himself and died. So I get the reference to madness in terms of the fallen house, but otherwise, I'm just, I don't know. It was meh. Yeah. yeah honestly, I hadn't even, I didn't even recognize that. Loki, I had totally forgotten that we even got the fallen house's name, like in one it's ear. Mentioned out the in other. Like a sec- yeah, that's exactly what it is, though. In one ear, out the other. It was Loki so irrelevant at that point that, like, it didn't even, like, anything so and i i think it like narratively it would have been better if we'd never gotten it yeah i think it was like it felt like akin to like the throwaway that like layla had another name mm-hmm. in that, that like we never that we also never got exactly that we, that we actually never got yeah and like rather like, have well, Layla's real name than the name of the stupid fallout exactly right it felt like that to me it felt like another like little narrative detail that was thrown in but i was like that's not the one i wanted what why'd you give me that one don't want it so jonathan what about you did you pick up anything about the fallen house name or did it in- other than it appeared no i got nothing out of it yeah i read it and i was like oh god that's so familiar and i knew it was i knew it was greek mythology and to be honest i, yeah, I didn't even that, pick that up i think it was that i remembered Sibylle more than i remembered Addis. Right, maybe because I'm been presenting and I like identified more with the character who <laughs> went mad, <laughs> or, or, or uh, yeah, who went mad. But I would rather have had Layla's real name than the Fallen House's real name. Do all of do, does anybody else feel differently? Do we all agree here? Agree. Nami is not agree. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> me, me, Rusla, take back your weird names. Me shaking Layla. Please tell me your name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We don't want you, Rusla. Get the fuck out of here. No, go away. Shut up. We only have time for one name reveal. And I don't <laughs> want yours. <laughs> we only have time for one name reveal. Exactly. Okay. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. So now, again, total like this is not a good segue this is (laughs) whatever but this is the thing the thing i was happiest about in this book holy fucking shit zofia enrique hypnos sorry not sorry best thing that happened in this series i am dead in the best way possible and i know that there wasn't like an explicit they are in a relationship thing right but they all lived together happily ever after. And they were roommates. Exactly. And you know, you know from like basically from 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 when they from Hypnos knowing that they were into each other and also from the whole Hypnos and Enrique like we're friends and Hypnos saying but I can also I could also love you. I just I'm not I'm not there yet. I'm not that person. I need time, etc. And then in, in, when they're in the train after everything and they all are like squeezing into the little cart and, and oh my gosh, and Enrique is 
well, can I hold your hand? Like, he's like, I like you. And so he was like, I really like you too. And he's like, can I hold your hand? And she's like, I, I don't really want to do that. And he's like, okay, can we just sit close? And she's like, yes, I would like that. And it's just like all of the, just everything about us. Starting from the base level of like the wholesomeness of asking for consent for like the very base Thing that your partner may or may not like and just being completely okay with the fact that they're not into something as simple as holding hands and still finding a way to be intimate with each other is just already chef's kiss then we also have the additional level of like hypnos and him sort of like having the maturity to know what he is and is not ready for and having like the emotional maturity and the state of mind to be like, hey, I'm not ready for this right now. I might be for one day, but for now I'm going to take a step back because I know that I can't give you what you need. And did I like the games that they were playing in the last book? No, drove me nuts. But the eventual conclusion of that was like, it was really, really good. And like, and like, just like the whole, like the narrative of like, of like Enrique and Sophia, like explicitly getting together and Hypnos just sort of being like on the background, like, hello, it's me. Hello, it's me. <laughs> Just like, oh, so good. And like, honestly, like, they and they were roommates is not even like implied anymore. And they were roommates is so like memefied to the point where we were like, where people modernly are like, and they were roommates means they were together. Like, that's not even a question anymore. Anyone in queer circles knows that that is a thing so the fact that it ended with and they all three of them were roommates it's like yep they're together that's it and just like i love it so much because like having like a positive fully like question mark hinge question mark triad relationship at the end just like like the kids need wholesome poly too mm-hmm as well and it just it just made my heart warm i really didn't think that when this book gave me layla i never thought i would hyper focus on the other romance but i did (laughs) the other romance was so fucking good and i'm so happy that enrique by local bisexual disaster is thriving as he deserves well and i think the thing of the the thing that i love about it and the thing that made me be like okay yeah no obviously they're not just roommates was that Zofia obviously really respects and cares about hypnos. Mm-hmm. And this is this is not something that is easy for Zofia as a person, but she warmed up to him like immediately, right? Like oh, yeah. she, she, she was him never she was never, you know, weirded out by him, etc. And so I just imagine this amazing relationship where they all give each other the things that they need. And I think that that is something that, and and I know it was only kind of it was heavily implied, right? We we have to fill in the blanks, but just knowing the three of them as characters and seeing that scene in in the train car at toward the end and everything was just. I, and Nick, okay, I got to give this over to you because you are a person who is in or has been in poly relationships whereas i have not and i just i need to hear your thoughts on this because hmm. oh my gosh. real quick quick for three seconds though because <laughs> i want to throw in the extra aside that zofia was the first person in the group to call hypnos a friend 
explicitly mm-hmm. to his face. Yep. And that, like, for the acceptance that Hypnos needed is so big. So, so big. Okay, sorry. Continue, Nick. No, absolutely. I, and, oh my gosh, I... I mean, we've been talking about this since I think book one mm-hmm. that like this was a possibility, and to well, you have never it, thought it would happen. I know, and so to have it canonized, it took all of my self control to not spill those beans immediately, oh y'all. Gosh. Thank you. Y'all should be so Thank proud. Thank you of me. for that. I am so proud of you. And we don't like uh, we were talking about. We don't get much polyamory representation, especially when it's not explicit right like sometimes we'll get the representation but it's because it's like oh these are polyamorous people so to have characters that are just characters who happen to be in relationship to each other whatever that might look like for them is was just so wonderful to see and that like younger audiences can see like this is a possibility for you and it doesn't have to be conflict between uh romantic options it can be let's figure out what works for all of us and it's just so so heartwarming to see that kind of thing like i just love it so much and for like literally my three favorite characters to get that is just like oh oh i love it i love it so much I think yeah. the best part about it is that, like, in a way, you really do see that, like, aspect of how they bring out, like, because Tara, you had mentioned they bring out, like, aspects of each other that, like, they mm-hmm. can't within just, like, a pair of them. All of that, like, Sophia and her ability to make Hypnos feel, like, needed and welcome, and, like, Hypnos and Enrique, and, like, their, like, spark, and then, like, Sophia and Enrique and their like their intellectualness mm-hmm. coming together and then like Enrique making Sophia feel like she is like capable of being like beautiful and like all of that and then Hypnos making Sophia feel like you know like a worthy friend like because mm-hmm. I feel like I feel like with that relationship like Zofia might have been the first one to be like, oh, yeah, you're my friend. But that also was probably the first time that somebody was so enthusiastic about being considered a friend that, like, that aspect of the bond and then, like, Hypnos, like, continuing to just be like, oh, of course you know this. You're a genius. Like, that sort of thing was just all, like, very good vibes. Them all just finding, like, a place of belonging with each other, because they're all characters who, like, don't belong for various reasons at this point in history, and it's just... Uh, my heart is full! And I, I want to say, too, because I did talk a little bit earlier about how I was frustrated with some of the writing aspects. This is where I think the author shines, and and why the series is so good even when i'm frustrated by some of the other pieces because her ability to write these relationships in such a believable meaningful way and not fall into so many of the frustrating tropes that ya books often do was phenomenal and i loved that about that writing and it's why I, I very rarely think time jumps are effective narratively 
I think she actually did a fantastic job with the time jump telling a really compelling story from multiple perspectives. And so I just really want to give take a second to give kudos to her for that, because while there were things that I was frustrated with, while there were plot elements I was frustrated with, she did some really amazing things that a lot of other writers either fail to or stumble over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I remember just like blazing through the last like parts of this book, just being like, ah. yeah. Because there's so much that happens, right? Like yep. we, Tara and I were talking last time, like we had no idea how everything was going to possibly get wrapped up in the small amount of book space that we had left. And, you know, frankly, with the exceptions that we've already talked about, I think she did a really great job of pulling all, everything back together in a very short period of time. It's, well, it's difficult to stick a, stick a landing and I think, with the exception of Ruslan, I really do think she stuck it. Yeah. The hand waviness with the magic disappearing, I can forgive it because it was like, it was very cinematic in a way. Well, it was what was very, the point of the I, magic disappearing? I mean, I don't see how that added to the plot or, or subtracted from the plot. It was, it was just a pointless... I think it was because they were taking, like, power was being taken away from the people who had had it for so long, right? And be, and they'd had it because they'd stolen it, really, for the most part, from societies who were being undermined, right? There's a quote, and I'm going to read it. In the past, Severn had stolen out of the hubris that he could take from the order of Babel. Now he was humbled by the thought of shepherding history into different homes. History might be shaped by the tongues of conquerors, but it was not a fixed shape or story. And with every object they repatriated, it was like adding or recasting a sentence in a book whose pages were as wide and infinite as a horizon. So the, the, the point was that they're still stealing stuff, but they're bringing it back to the people who actually owned it in the first place. It's a slight dig. I, I mean, maybe on colonization and, and it, it is, it is Roshni Chokshi hacking at the British museum with a giant ax. And I am here for it because that is the narrative that I'm a fan of. The yeah. only reason the pyramids are still in Egypt is because the they couldn't be taken away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's because they can't. They're too just, heavy. They can't just dig up the pyramids and fly them to. Fucking- well, they could have. I mean, they've moved castles before. You could have. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you're you're not wrong. But that, that and that's kind <laughs> of the fact of the matter is like before, like the whole Severn was stealing out of hubris. It's kind of. Because uh, they weren't returning things to the people they actually belonged to before, even though that that's something that Enrique, who worked with Severin, was always aiming for, right? Mm-hmm. He was always gunning for, let's get this stuff back to where it actually belongs, to so the people who actually should have owned it. And because none of the forged objects 
work, I guess. It's like easier for them, which also that that that's an entirely different issue. Yeah, it still should be worth something. I mean, they're ancient. Well, thing, you know, I think the other thing is that I kind of do very much feel like at the end it sort of turns like very I don't know if allegory is the right word, but it sort of becomes like an image of like what would Western civilization do right here, right now, if all of the stolen things in museums just crumbled to dust? What would they do? What would they think? What would happen? What would be the repercussions of that? And I think that on a less abstract, more literal, but implied way is what Chokshi is trying to do at the end. And I think that's what we get because, and I think in a way, Severin's quote kind of like hands into that because, you know, before that he wasn't doing anything. And like, in a way, him stealing from the Order of Babel because he could is the same as the Order of Babel stealing from other civilizations because they could. It was for their own gain and they thought the other people didn't deserve it. It was for Severin's own gain and he thought the Order of Babel doesn't, didn't deserve it. Turns out the Order of Babel really didn't deserve it because they were low-key evil colonizing racists. But that's like a separate thing. Your sin doesn't, stealing doesn't magically become okay because you're stealing from bad people, you know? In a way it does kind of though, like I, I am a component of the Robin Hood system, but like, <laughs> but like you know, like Severin realizing ultimately that the Order of Babel has on a greater scale been doing what he has been doing and him like, explicitly connecting those dots all i could imagine was enrique in the background being like yes this is what i've been trying to tell you haven't you listened exactly nobody listened to enrique, enrique just kind of all, all i could imagine is like four objects are breaking down and exactly enrique's like if it wasn't for the fact that I self-identified with Layla all the time, cough, Nami says it for the 30th time, uh, <laughs> Enrique would have been my unobjective favorite because dude on his pedestal talking about colonization in a fantasy setting and how it's still shit, it's just like, oh, hi, look, that's what I do when I read fantasy books all the fucking time. Hey, bud, it's me, same hat. And like, you know, just like, all I'm imagining is that everything's breaking down and, like, Enrique's just in a corner going, yeah, you fucking deserve it, you thieves! And I'm just like, yeah, good for you. Good for you. Yeah, I, I mean, as somebody who was a history major, and while I haven't done anything with that degree, I still have consistently, I, I, I read the books, I do, I, I go to the museums, I do the things, like, I, it's always it's always been an issue with me where I know how much of this shit is stolen, right? It is stolen. I, it was, I it have was, a lovely relationship with museums for the same right, reason. Exactly. exactly. I, I say it jokingly all the time. Like give us back our diamonds, crown jewels, not your crown. They're fucking mine. And like, you know, everybody. That's why I never wanted a diamond ring. Ever. I was right? like, like, don't you ever buy me a diamond ring ever. I, I like, I, Ever, I say ever. it. I say it so much that like people probably think it's a joke, but I'm like, no, like I am, I am fully serious. There's the moment in like Black Panther when like you know like the main big bad he like breaks into the museum and like steals all their stuff, and they're like, and he's like, hey, you know, this is stolen. I'm just taking back what's mine, and I've never identified with the 
with a comic book villain more than I did in that minute. But then also, also that's old Michael B. Jordan. Hmm. Oh. <laughs> listen, listen. Twenty I out of ten, that guy. I acknowledge that he was covered in the self-mutilation scars of glorifying killing other human beings, but also consider he hate colonizers and he hot. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, I never have a Michael B. Jordan again. It's so sad. At least not in Marvel films. You I might. Well, I hope not, actually, because he was awful in the other role he played. Oh, or maybe yeah. he wasn't so awful, but the film was the worst. No, yeah, fa- fa- we don't talk about Fan Four Stick. That fantastic, no, that Fantastic Four yeah, was the worst. Fan, fan Four Stick. We don't talk about Fan Four Stick. It wasn't real, Jordan. What didn't happen? Wow, sorry. It wasn't real, Jonathan. What didn't happen cannot hurt you. Also, why did I say Jordan? I don't know. That was, <laughs> sure. I don't even know Jordan. Jordan, as everybody should be, because wow, wow. Dude, yeah, I was still thinking about, yeah. I think, like, you know, the whole book with Enrique, the whole series with Enrique's commentary, like, since Enrique comments, like, and discusses so explicitly colonization, and since forging itself is rooted in the theft of the West's Babel fragment from some civilization in the East, that it is heavily implied that after they stole this fragment, this civilization crumbled, because that's what happens when you steal their magic source as the as the Babel fragment it's heavily implied like the whole time that this is just or rather it's not even implied it's right in your fucking face that forging and everything that the order of Babel is doing is very explicitly what museums in the west have done to you know indigenous and eastern populations and populations of color and civilizations of color for a very long time they steal their stuff and then they go oh no civilization crumbled why they go into their place they conquer it and they like specifically create conflicts between the native people and exacerbate them and then they leave and they're like oh no they started fighting when we left i wonder why and like it's very it's and you know like chokshi's indian so like she and, knows well, no it. no she's um she's, she's mixed. filipino indian yeah, filipino indian yeah so she's mixed but like you know when you were indian like you might not like even if you're not born and raised in India, like myself, you still know about like the India-Pakistan conflict because like, I'm gonna be honest, my grandparents are very anti-Muslim because they lived through that conflict and it was a scary, violent time for them. But the conflict between Hindus and and Muslims in India was exacerbated and encouraged by the british occupation absolutely hells yeah so everybody's like oh like the british left and india tore itself apart and i'm like no the british continued lighting fires under these people and pitting themselves against each other instead of against them by giving them something else to fight for and then when they left they could just point fingers and be like oh no look at these people they couldn't do it without us it's it is the colonizer like textbook it's it's what they always do and like in a way low-key because of how i interpret this and because how i know chokshi's like an indian writer i interpreted this as the Babel fragment that they stole from the east was from india because before british occupation india was like the third richest country in the world and it's considered the third world country now and the gap between rich and poor is so extreme because of the repercussions of the British stealing of stealing all of their resources and using it for British wealth. Like India used to be 
the most wealthiest or one of the most wealthiest like top five and now it's like low-key not even on the book and so like to me the whole like like hand wavy magic system that oh yes they stole the babel fragment from the east and that civilization crumbled and now we can't lose our babel fragment because our civilization will crumble and the end being like their magic civilization (laughs) yeah and like having the story end that like the magic was gone so their civilization crumbled it was just me screaming fuck you too in the background I know that got real for a hot second, but it had no, to. I, I, that was amazing. I, I yes, I, I mean you you know more about this than any of us ever could, and but Loki, I still it. know like so little. It's kind of crazy to think about it. Like you know, like there are so many people who live this who know more than I do. There's so many people who currently live in India who or who grew up there and came here who will know infinitely more than I ever do. You know, and like it's kind of wild to think about that like as much as like I know about this and I feel connected to this and to this conflict I still like side note if anybody wants to like know more about the conflict doesn't want to read books Ms. Marvel is a great TV show for you to watch FYI really also Ms. Marvel is lovely because in a way I think it is a really great resource that brings back kids of my generation beyond the prejudices that their parents' generations had. Because oh, so- I read, I read Miss Marvel, and I am Indian, and she is Pakistani. Yeah. And as far as you know, historical conflict states, they want to say that we are as different as possible. But the only thought I ever had as a eighteen, nineteen-year-old reading Miss Marvel was. Oh wow, this is me as a kid. The only thought that I have now as a 27-year-old watching Miss Marvel is, oh wow, this was me as a kid. Like I see Iman Balani, like the 18-year-old or 17-year-old, she baby, she baby, and she's this little Pakistani baby. And I just see like I just see like myself and like the fact that like the cultural like shock experience of growing up here with south asian parents who are raised traditionally is so like different and like trying to like reconcile all of that like it's just so good it's just such a shared experience that all south asians have and like people my generation get that so which is more accurate never have i ever or uh miss marvel I'm gonna be honest. I have not seen Never Have I Ever, but I suspect it's pretty accurate as well. That's really a funny show. It's a great show. <laughs> I will. I will say this. Whenever Ms. Marvel, whenever she's talking to you, her grandmother on the phone, <laughs> it's you talking to your parents <laughs> on FaceTime in New Orleans. <laughs> the legendary FaceTime <laughs> where I where you broke your arm. <laughs> Was so busy talking to my mom, I tripped on a curb and broke my whole ass arm. And Tara picked up the phone, screamed, "Everything's fine, don't worry." And hung up. Well, because the last thing I needed was your parents yelling at me on, on my wedding night. Well, the best thing about it though is that like my mom called me the next day. She's like, "Well, Tara said everything was fine, so I wasn't concerned." Like you were with Tara, and I'm like, "Mom, this is like the one time you actually should have been concerned, though." I love, I love that I wasn't concerned because you were with Tara, but also, I mean, listen, like 
whatever you'd done to yourself was already done. And uh, Tim did pop your elbow back into place. And so there were, there were still problems. But in general, it was Listen, the doctor I didn't, me. I didn't need your poor parents at like nine o'clock East Coast time or ten o'clock East Coast time worrying about you when I was wait wait a second. It didn't happen after midnight. I no. thought all bad things happen after midnight. Nope, no. it was solidly like ten p.m. No, it was early in New Orleans time. It was like eight thirty, dude. It was like oh 8 my god, you're but eight thirty New Orleans is oh, like nine thirty, eleven thirty. You start thinking way earlier in New Orleans. I still don't think. Tommy and I were having mimosas when we got our hair done that morning. Yeah, I don't think I even got past like midnight New Orleans time though, like with that honorary time difference. But yeah, no, Tara and I had started with mimosas when we were getting our hair done that morning. So it was. So last thoughts on the ending or the series as a whole. And I'm just going to spill mine out and then we'll go to Nick and then Jonathan and then Nami. Honestly, I was worried I had been spoiled on the ending because my dumbass Googled something when I was maybe three quarters of the way through the book. And there was this interview with the author, Rashani Chakshi, uh, where she was, she talked about crying as she was writing the ending. And I was like, oh, for fuck's sake, how bad is this going to be? Like, it's going to be so sad and so bad. But don't get me wrong. I had a bit of a cry myself over a few things. It was like the sad cry over Layla dying and then, or quote unquote dying. And then it was like the kind of happy cry over Enrique deciding he wanted to become a teacher and Enrique and Hypnos and Sophia being a throuple or whatever the fuck they were, a hinge relationship, whatever. We don't really get the details, but whatever it was, it was glorious. And then Severin, you know, bringing the two, the two boys in from Italy and raising them, et cetera, et cetera. But then Severin got to like not age for a hundred years and Layla came back to him. So I'm kind of in the, I didn't dislike the ending, but I also don't, I, I liked a lot of, I loved a lot of things about it, but the the whole thing was Severin not aging for a hundred years and Layla coming back to him. So what happens next? It, it, I, I, I'm, I, I would say I would give it like a seven out of 10 in terms of endings at best. It might be a six, but I'll, I'll give it a solid seven just because I loved Enrique and Hypnos and, and Sophia so much. Uh, so Nick, what about you? I really liked the ending uh minus the parts that we already talked about and of course that all like skewed upwards after the the reveal of enrique and uh zofia and hypnos and overall i just i really enjoyed the series uh there were definitely some things that having a main character that is just such a fucking downer the entire time mm-hmm. and who like Nami was saying, just makes the worst possible fucking decisions for 90% of a trilogy was really hard. Like, it straight up, that was really hard. But there were so many great characters. I really enjoyed the relationships and the interactions. And I really liked the ending. I thought she stuck it well. And I... I'm excited to read more from her. 
Jonathan, I know you're our detractor on this. <laughs> I mean, the characters were fun. I thought the plot line of this story was pretty terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, the ending was better than the rest of the book. Uh, so I, I didn't mind the ending. It sort of reminded me, ironically, of the ending for the Forever War in some some ways, but um, just in waiting for your for your love. A spoiler for the Forever War if we ever read that. But <laughs> <laughs> well, we can't read that now. Revolving. <laughs> what? Damn it! That was on my TBR. <laughs> It, it wasn't. I have no idea what you're talking about. It's actually my. It's. It was actually my favorite novel as a high school oh. college student. Cool. It won the Hugo in '77. Um, I just reread it. It it holds up pretty well, with the with the exception of the treatment of homosexuality, which even the um, author admits is problematic <laughs> in today's environment. <laughs> Well, good, good on him for admitting it. I'm concerned how bad it is, but uh, technicalities. But uh, it's it's still a good book. Overall, I would. This is probably my least favorite series that we've read as as a group. What? Yeah, I I enjoyed Temeraire better than this. Um, though Ooh. I think Temeraire really outlived Jonathan. It. Yeah, it, it sounds terrible. I know, but but Temeraire totally outlived its its lifespan i mean if temer i shouldn't say it. temer had been three books i would have liked it better than this okay, <laughs> the fact good, that drove, drove us for another six flogged that horse for six more more novels all right cool i would like to clarify that jonathan's stance is Temerer was better if it was only three books, parentheses, <laughs> but because it was so many more books, this is still better. <laughs> pretty much, yeah, yeah pretty year. much, that's where, I, that's where I viewed it. I did think in some ways the, I, I actually felt bad for Severin, even though I thought for the most part he was a horrible human being, because to, to have to live and watch all your loved ones die is not necessarily a good thing. Yeah, mm, yeah I don't disagree. All right, Nami, what about you? Yeah, so I, um, as you guys may or may not know, this is one of, this is like my new, one of my new favorite series. I still think that Stone Sky is more of my favorite, but this is more of my favorite in a different way. Because like, you know, first off Layla, second off Layla, third off Layla, um, <laughs> fourth off Layla. So, okay, um. I digress. Uh, fifth off, uh, a girl who looks like me being the main character in a r romantic relationship and the most desirable. Sorry, I mean what? I mean Layla. Uh, let me continue. L Layla? Uh <laughs> but yeah, and it's like, it's funny because like even without Layla, I think what Roshni Chokshi does really, really well is characters. And I think, Nick, I absolutely agree. If Severin had been the only main character of this book, I would have shit myself and run away. I, I honestly have to say that, like, so another book that I think has dislikable main characters, but I think all of them are dislikable, is the Cruel Prince series. And all of them were so dislikable that I couldn't really read the books. Like, I had to, like, psych myself up to it and read those books. So, like, if a character, if the main character isn't likable, I find it really difficult to read. But I think it was okay for me personally in this series because Severin was dislikable, but then... Layla was amazing. Enrique was also like 
as a, like the most amazing possible and objectively my favorite if Layla hadn't hit every single button. And then also Zofia and Hypnos were also amazing. And then like Tristan with his like, oh dear, this poor boy had depression this whole time. Like pour one out for Tristan, right? But like, I think Chokshi does characters so well. And in a way, Jonathan, I do agree with you that the plot in this book was in this series was not as strong as the other series we've read and i think it really in a way it highlighted more how good roshni is at characters and it really like highlighted for me that i'm a character driven reader like the plot can be maximum hand wavy for me but if i can like the characters and if i have compelling characters i am there for it and I think she stuck the landing. I loved it. I know one of my friends had actually said that they were confused because they were like, why is Severin suddenly so nice? And I'm like, hey, 100 years of character development, you know? You kind of got to be. And we didn't really get to see, but that's okay. Well, it was funny because they were like, I can't picture Severin adopting kids. And I'm like, book one, Severin would never. Like, you're not wrong. Book two, Severin would not only not adopt the kids, he would kick them into the lake. Like, you know? And so it was... For me, I think the, <laughs> I think like the ending was like really satisfying. And I think, you know, like I didn't feel the explicit sadness in it, like the way that Chokshi was like, she was like crying while writing it. But to me, I definitely agree with Jonathan when you were, when you're saying that like the sadness of Severin outliving all of his friends and seeing them die is really heartbreaking and he does get Layla in the end and they do get there happily ever after but it you is hope. heartbreaking like to see all of like time go by I maintain that like my greatest fear would be if like if some sort of immortality would be possible that I would absolutely not thrive at it like no so, yeah, I love this series. The end. So, I find it interesting, though, uh, uh, that now in hindsight, that Hypnos did not have his own POV, POV. Yeah, he didn't even get, like, his epilogue like he usually did, right? Like, he got an epilogue in book one and book two. Hypnos did. And then he didn't mm-hmm. get one. I would have, I, I want, the, give us the Hypnos cut, damn it. Honestly, I do. In a way, I get it because I don't know that the hypnos in my mind could ever match a POV hypnos because in my mind, he's so chaotic and doing his best, but also definitely not that I don't know that Chokshi is as unhinged as he is. (laughs) And I mean that very kindly. I mean unhinged in the most loving way. He's the best. He's the best. I love Truly. him. We love him. Okay, so any any last insights or thoughts, you guys, on this series? I mean, I think because I liked the ending, I would... Weirdly enough, if you had asked me, like, 10 years ago, I would have preferred, like, Broken Earth or Devabad with their, like, not... With their bittersweet endings, right? But at this point in my life, I am very much enjoying the idea of a happy ending. So I I enjoyed the ending of this. Uh, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily, I enjoyed the journey as much as I have some of our other series. But like I said, I'd, I'd, I'd give it like a solid, like probably a seven out of 10. Works for me. For me, it's definitely a 10. Layla. 
Well, <laughs> I, 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 listen, I'll think I did. Layla was perfect from beginning to end. We're never gonna, we're never gonna argue with Layla. This but, is a Layla fan club, first and foremost. Seriously, next season we will be rebranding. <laughs> it. Our podcast name is now Layla Stands Forever, and it's and it's spelled the letter, the number four E V A. Okay. <laughs> Or it's or it's just MFILF mom friend I'd like to fuck. <laughs> what? It took Where me a minute to that? figure that one to, out. You, you might have missed that, Jonathan. That was in a book one episode. I'm not sure which one. Where we definitely talked about how Layla yep. was the mom friend I'd like to fuck. Yep. That was an early episode. Like Layla she, was the mom was the mom, mom MFILF. No, she's a mom friend. As a character trope, she's the mom friend, and mom. so she's the mom friend I'd like to fuck. Like, yeah, so okay, yeah. The friend. Like now I'm confused. Friend. friend of the mother. I'm, I'm no, 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 no. The character <laughs> okay. trope is that you're the mom friend. Like you take care of everybody. You. Oh, okay. okay it's me. It. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Uh, okay, so. I'm going to read a quote real quick, and then I'll close this out. And the quote I'm reading is a hypnos quote. Yes. Because heartbeat, heartbeat. And I, I think, I honestly think that all of us can probably identify this with this. I, I love this quote, too. All it's his favorite. life, all his life, hypnos had felt like a wandering set of notes, desperate to be set into music. And he had found it in the friends who had become family. Even with them, he felt nervous, as if they might throw him out of their music at any moment. But this grand song assured him otherwise. The song told him he was enough as he was, that his soul held a symphony of his own, for that was how he had been made. And I just, I, so sorry, I'm, I'm choking up no, so much. That was good. <laughs> oh, okay, as we close out the episode... We just want to give a shout out to our heroes to your Patreon, Tommy of the TKOK Podcast Network. Thank you so much for supporting us. Once again, I'm Tara along with Nick, Jonathan, and Nami. Don't forget that you can always hit us up at Sagas and Sass on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or email us at sagasandsass at gmail.com with any comments or thoughts you might have. Thank you for joining us for Sagas and Sass. We will be back on Thursday, August 18th. So we're taking a bit of a break here. It's about three weeks with our 50th episode special, which will be all about the series that brought the four of us together. George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. I'm very excited to have what will probably be a longer discussion than normal about how we all met and how this series brought us together and what we love about it, et cetera, et cetera. So we will hope to see you guys on Thursday, August 18th. Thank you again for joining us and have a great night. Thank you for listening to the Sagas and Sass podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Sagas and Sass.